0: Ours is a world of injustice, anger, and turmoil. The anger stirs as much inside our hearts and minds as it does in the battles that surround. Battles waged against injustice and fueled by justified anger at its flagrant and systemic perpetuation. Check your feelings. For anyone whose heart has been ignited with flames of moral outrage, a call to action has been issued. This inward call may issue in kind in the common world from family and friends, from a mosque or a church, online, in print, or from out of megaphones in crowded squares. But regardless of the person or place from where it issues, the call to action is a call to unite in a common cause and fight. And indeed fight, we must. Without outrage and a fighting spirit, there can be no cause. Without a cause, there can be no movement. Without a movement, there can be no justice. No justice, no peace. Moral outrage, no doubt, spurs us to take decisive action without which there could be no change. However, in fighting, we also cast the dice of conflict and even of war, the outcome of which can be as little known as it can be controlled. And where, finally, is the virtue in launching an uncertain campaign for justice if it ultimately succeeds only in further plunging us into self-perpetuating cycles of violence and unrest? If fight we must, how ought we to fight? If act we must, how ought we to act? If feel we must, outraged or otherwise, how ought we to feel? if we must exist in this world of injustice and outrage, as indeed we do, how ought we to live if the endless cycle of turmoil is to be broken? This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Nick Cook. Hello. Today we discuss strategies for action in one of the world's most renowned wisdom texts, the Bhagavad Gita. Here to help guide us through those strategies is soon to be philosophy PhD candidate at Marquette University and student and teacher of the Bhagavad Gita, Shaila Wadhwani. Shaila, it's a joy and an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and really pleased at the invitation.
0: All right, well, Shaila, you and I are colleagues in the Marquette University philosophy program. You are several years in advance of myself, but as both of us graduate students studying philosophy, we are made to be keenly aware of how important it is that we hone an area of professional specialization. But for me personally, the more interesting and inspiring question around which to center my philosophical activities is not what is your area of specialization, but rather, what is your motivating intervention? And the dialogue of the Bhagavad Gita is exactly that, an intervention. It is in fact an impromptu seminar on the principles governing humanity's spiritual development, according to the character of the Gita who conducts that impromptu seminar. That character is Krishna, And he conducts his impromptu seminar in an open battlefield between two armies where his country and kinsmen are on the verge of a civil war. On the one side stands the quote-unquote evil-minded Duryodhana and his armies, while on the other side stand Duryodhana's kinsmen, the opposition, led by the warrior Prince Arjuna and his lifelong friend Krishna. Krishna, in this opening scene of the Gita, is called upon to intervene with an impromptu seminar because the warrior Arjuna has lost his confidence in the possibility of justice, in the virtue of war, even a just war, and indeed in the whole point of life. Seeing my kinsmen gathered here ready to fight, Arjuna confides to Krishna, all of a sudden I am overwhelmed by emotion. Social turmoil is hell, Krishna, Arjuna continues for the family and for the whole society. Meanwhile, earth and sky are filled with the reverberations of drums and the deafening roar of impending war. Today, we too can feel the reverberations in our communities, not only in the United States, but around the world, as protesters continue to take to the streets in justified outrage to demand justice of all varieties, racial, economic, environmental, and otherwise. In these present circumstances, there may be some of us who are feeling very much like Arjuna, overwhelmed with emotion, despondent, and engulfed in a debilitating doubt regarding not only the viability of our civil and political institutions, but the structure and fabric of the very existence into which they are woven and in which we find ourselves seemingly hopelessly ensnared from birth to death after murderous death. If ever there were a time to call an impromptu seminar on the principles governing humanity's spiritual development, it's now. And so, Shaila, that's why you're here today, to guide us through the contents of Krishna's legendary intervention in hopes that we can learn something for our own intervention about how to gain a certain philosophical perspective and fight the good fight.
1: What a lovely introduction, and thank you so much for having me here. I'm so pleased and honored to bring forward some of my thinking on this text. I will admit that I'm not a specialist in this field, but this text has been part of my cultural upbringing and background, and I've worked through this text in several translations. I also introduced this text in several classes I've taught and now center it in a theory of ethics class. I think some of my insights in this text and its philosophical background and ethical questions have some relevance to thinking through the present moment and may help in thinking through some of what we see unfolding in our communities today. The Bhagavad Gita opens with Arjuna on the battlefield and considering not just whether to fight, but how to fight how to direct his engagements with the world, and how to find himself, find some grounding uh, in the predicament that he finds himself in.
0: Where do you think would be a good point of entry in order to think about how the Gita can help in the present circumstances? Uh, Perhaps the most immediate association many will have of the Gita with emancipatory civil action is Gandhi. In fact, there's a famous photograph taken of Gandhi's possessions after his assassination. And in this photograph, all we see are sandals, his spectacles, uh, a couple of rice bowls, and the copy of the Bhagavad Gita.
1: Exactly. Gandhi's translation and reflections on the Bhagavad Gita are renowned and famous. He was often seen walking with little more than his cane, his robe, and a dog-eared copy of the Bhagavad Gita. But the influence of the Bhagavad Gita is not limited to Hinduism or to the profound respect for his texts in India alone. Famously, many Western philosophers have drawn great inspirations from this text. Indeed, poets such as Emerson or, and Thoreau, to name a few, have all drawn heavily from this text. And also, perhaps more infamously, Oppenheimer, uh, who was reading this text and quoted from it at the time of his developing the nuclear bomb. But it's important to note that the Bhagavad Gita is not monolithically accepted and upheld as a valid ethical treatise. There are significant critiques of the text by important revolutionary Indian thinkers and activists like Ambedkar. His Intervention in the acceptance of the text and in critiquing its value is important in that it puts into context our intellectual heroes. Gandhi too is also not without critique. And while we have much to gain from his work, we also need to remember that human heroes are just that, they're human. They write and act and are influenced from a place and in a time, and we should be careful readers. We could have a whole episode on Gandhi as a thinker and activist, uh, but I will note just briefly that there is a play about his relationship with his son, and a recent book on his relationships with female servants that question the proportions of idolatry that have hoisted Gandhi on a pedestal, as well as his racism when he was in South Africa.
0: Yes, we see uh, in recent BBC news headline, for example, that I saw uh, on the 12th of June, 2020, calls to remove racist Gandhi statue in Leicester, a city in England. And I think that's not the only call to remove statues of Gandhi. There are others I th- in India as well. Believe- I believe, Shaila, you told me about that.
1: I think in South Africa, Um, There, they've removed a statue of Gandhi because of his racist comments when he lived in South Africa.
0: You mentioned also other well-known figures who took inspiration from the Gita, uh, Emerson, Thoreau, Oppenheimer. Another important figure who took profound inspiration from, if not the Gita directly, certainly indirectly, by way of what he at least once referred to as Gandhian philosophy. The figure I'm referring to is Martin Luther King Jr. So we know that King was, as Cornel West often points out, himself a broken vessel, that is a morally imperfect human being like all of us. Similarly, Uh, Gandhi's biographer and his grandson insists that he was, quote, an imperfect human being. However, Cain was a profound admirer of Gandhi and agreed unequivocally with the statement made by his grandson uh, that, and I quote, on racial equality, Gandhi was greatly in advance of most, if not all of his compatriots. And the struggle for human rights in South Africa paved the way for the struggle for black rights. So I want to flesh out this keen Gandhi connection because I think it might help us to think about uh, how we could potentially approach the Gita as a text to be taken up in struggles for justice. So I have here several excerpts uh, I would like to take a minute to read. These excerpts are from the database of Stanford University's MLK Jr. Research and Education Institute. If you're listening on YouTube, I'll link the source in the description, but here's what we read. A testament to the revolutionary power of nonviolence, Gandhi's approach directly influenced Martin Luther King Jr., who argued that the Gandhian philosophy was, quote, the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed peoples in their struggle for freedom. It was in South Africa that Gandhi was first exposed to official racial prejudice, and where he developed his philosophy of nonviolent direct action by organizing the Indian community to oppose race-based laws and socioeconomic repression. In his 1959 Palm Sunday sermon, King preached on the significance of Gandhi's 1928 Salt March and is fast to end discrimination against India's untouchables. King ultimately believed that the Gandhian approach of nonviolent resistance would, quote, bring about a solution to the race problem in America. And from the same source regarding King's trip to India from February to March, 1959, we read that King shared reminiscences with Gandhi's close comrades who openly praised him for his efforts in Montgomery, influencing nonviolent philosophies in global spheres of conflict Gandhi's family reinforced King's belief in the power of passive resistance and its potential usefulness throughout the world even against totalitarian regimes Upon his return from India King compared the discrimination of India's untouchables with America's race problems noting that India's leaders publicly endorsed integration laws This has not been done so largely in America King wrote he added Today, no leader in India would dare to make a public endorsement of untouchability. However, in America, every day some leader endorses racial segregation. King's trip to India had a profound influence on his understanding of nonviolent resistance and his commitment to America's struggle for civil rights. In a radio address made during his final evening in India, King reflected, quote, Since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed peoples in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe, and these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation.
1: Great. Yeah, this is. An issue close to my heart because my grandmother was part of the Gandhi campaign. She marched with him and was imprisoned for some months for handing out flags on the street. And she accompanied the thousands on the salt marches and was very much active in her youth for One India and independence from British rule. We do have to remember that the Gandhi move for nonviolence is not without critique itself. Without going too much into an ad hominem critique of Gandhi and the new research that I mentioned earlier, his is only one adaptation of the Bhagavad Gita for political aims. For Gandhi, the fight for freedom and independence from colonialism was a religious war. It was a holy war. And in this way, he adapted Arjuna's dilemma to the task at hand, which was independence from British rule. Here, there is a tacit acceptance of a just war. Another important note about Gandhi's reading is that he did not directly challenge the central tenet of the Gita, which includes a determinism according to social and caste roles. And this is where the intervention of Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar comes in. For Ambedkar, the Bhagavad Gita underscores and justifies Brahmanical rule with the underlying caste and class distinctions, which I hope we will speak more about later. One thing I would like to begin with is sketching out some of the general themes and philosophical questions that the text brings to light, and then from there we might be able to see how we can apply those themes to an understanding of what's going on today. This preview of the general themes in the book might help us as a good introduction for people interested in working with the Bhagavad Gita and other Hindu spiritual texts.
0: This is a a terrific place to begin, and we can note, as you already have, Shaila, that these general themes of the Gita you are about to present, they have a widespread influence on activists, poets, scientists, and philosophers alike. But this range of influence is perhaps not surprising, given that the Gita certainly understands itself to be identifying, among other things, a common human condition.
1: Exactly. One of the really revolutionary aspects of this text is that it brings to the ground and to the people a way of bringing spiritual resonance and intellectual resonance into our active daily lives. In this way, the Bhagavad Gita is said to have four major themes. One is of karma yoga, which is the yoga of selfless action or service. One is jnana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge. The third is bhakti yoga, which is the yoga or the pursuit of devotion and love. And lastly, raja yoga, which is the yoga of meditation. So it's really a text that is harmonizing these aspects of ourselves. We are all in the world. We all have to act every day. We are not alone on a mountain, meditating silently as aesthetics might do. We are in the world, very much so in action, in family and work life. And the Bhagavad Gita has lessons for harmonizing these multiple dimensions of our existence with a concrete worldview, a theory of action and a theory of the individual.
0: You mentioned just now that we all have to act every day, and I just want to highlight how deep this rudeness in action goes in the Gita. Inaction is, in fact, impossible. This is pointed out several times in the text. One of those times we read Krishna saying, Indeed, Arjuna, inaction, for even a moment, is impossible. Eating, sleeping, breathing, the heartbeat. And even subconscious mental activities are all actions. From the single whirling atom up to the entire universe, all movement is action.
1: Exactly. We have no choice but to act. So the text tells us that in order to perhaps purify our action or look closely at our intention before our action, We ought to integrate our intellectual and spiritual centered self with the devotion to the ideal. In this text, that devotion to the ideal is a loving relationship with Krishna and our highest consciousness. But we can always think about the ideal as a principle, the ideal of freedom, for example, the ideal of equality. So we can integrate this kind of spiritual dimension by really thinking about what our highest ideals are.
0: You mentioned that there are four major themes of yoga in the Gita. There's the theme of yoga action, yoga knowledge, a third of yoga devotion or love, and then a fourth of yoga meditation. Are all four of these yoga themes we read about also what we might call practices? I ask because I have an excerpt here from a book the Bhagavad Gita, according to Gandhi, where Gandhi is quoted as saying that yoga simply means practice. He says, after you understand this, you'll have to translate your knowledge into action in the manner I shall explain. The word yoga is used repeatedly in the Gita. It explains how to act. We should do no work with attachment. Attachment to good work, is that too wrong? Yes, it is. If we are attached to our goal of winning liberty, we shall not hesitate to adopt bad means. Hence, we should not be attached even to a good cause. Only then will our means remain pure and our action too. So Shaida, you spoke of acting uh, in relationship to an ideal or principle, but you don't mean by these terms necessarily a goal or a cause in the way that Gandhi clarifies. In the practice of yoga, should be avoided.
1: Good, you're right. What he's pointing to is the way in which our action is often directed towards a goal or consequence or some aim that we would like to achieve. And this direction can often be single minded, it can often be forced. And the directions the Gita stresses time and time again that when there is a goal or aim that is external to us, this is a problem. This idea of separation is one of the roots of suffering. We see this in Buddhist teachings too, this idea of non-attachment, non-attachment to an external goal. Rather, we should try to cultivate a union and unify our actions with our intellect, with loving devotion, And with this idea of selflessness, such that our acting becomes a kind of meditation.
0: So it's not action in the pursuit of something external to ourselves, in which we can become entangled, such that our emotional highs and lows are bound up with objects or with circumstances that are ultimately outside of our control. There's an interesting part, I think it's in the path of knowledge in the second discourse. Uh, The Gita, by the way, it's arranged into three parts containing a total of 18 discourses. It's an accessible and engaging read, uh, perhaps especially well suited to reading at nighttime before bed as as I did. But in the second discourse, we read about the downward spiral. And I think this description of the downward spiral helps show where attachment leads us astray. Uh, I'm To read this passage, the downward spiral to one's ruin, we read, consists of the following process. Brooding on or merely thinking about worldly attractions develops attachments to them. We could also think in this instance, not only of worldly attractions, but of our highest worldly aspirations and perhaps even our most cherished causes. But from attachment to objects come selfish desires. Thwarted desires cause anger to erupt. From anger arises delusion. This causes confusion of the mind and makes one forget the lessons of experience. Forgotten lessons of experience cloud the reason, which results in loss of discrimination. Finally, losing the faculty of discrimination makes one veer from life's only purpose, achieving union with the divinity within.
1: This is a lovely passage that you've read. And this idea of union or yoke is the center of the definition of yoga. It's a union of the body and the mind of the spirit and of matter. And this section that you read points to the danger of desire and desire as a modality of our attachments, our egoic attachments. And these attachments If they are centered in an ego self, in the individual, there's no community to them. There's no community involvement. And so this singular ego attachment is what the text teaches that we may hope to overcome. The text teaches that we may be too attached to an outcome. And this deep drive for this said outcome will affect our thinking of how to pursue it. And so the Gita teaches by integrating and refining our desires away from the material realm to the spiritual or higher consciousness realm. This is one way of refining our desires. Often I have this question from students, well, everybody likes candy bars. How can I expect to not like a chocolate bar? Is that... A worthy refinement of desire? And I think the response to this would be that the strength of your desire is what you can hope to change, or the singular ego desire. And perhaps your desires may change themselves. We can think of our childhoods where perhaps we had a great distaste for broccoli, for example, whereas in adulthood we may have a different way of relating to broccoli. So our desires can change. And this brings us to one of the major divisions in the worldview and cosmological system of the Bhagavad Gita. Metaphysically, there is a dual universe, one of matter, of stuff and things, the inert physical world. This is what I refer to playfully with students as our compost nature. It is that which changes. It is the embodiment. It is that which ceases to be, what is finite. And there's a further secondary realm, which is of spirit, of pure consciousness, of being, of the infinite and of life. The text goes into much detail of these metaphysics and the different realms of the worlds. But I think the point is important to make clear that desire can shift from being rooted and directed to material ends, our bodily desires, desires for food, desires for chocolate bars to higher desires of the spiritual, or desires of consciousness. These are higher aspects of being. So with this perhaps we're already seeing some of the differences and some of the difficulties in easily applying the lessons of the Gita to the given political unrest, the social unrest, because what the current situation is pointing to is to very material disparities people are struggling for and asking for material change, which is not to say that these desires are wrong. These desires are justified. And one might say that in healing desires for the material, in rectifying material relationships for life, for living, perhaps then the dialectic towards higher intellectual and spiritual cultivation may be more easily attained or met. And with this point of comparison, we can also see the relevance of Ambedkar's criticism of the Bhagavad Gita. For Ambedkar, someone from the lower caste, he saw this value of denying material gains as part of a bigger problem. And that was a ruling class that profited from the distinctions in caste. He even goes so far as to say that the Gita is counter-revolutionary in that it maintains a notion of inequality in the social classes. And so in this sense, it is not only the violence of war that he reads in the Bhagavad Gita, but the violence of erasure of a counter-history. So this notion of desire is a sticky point, but we can say that the Gita proposes a transformation of desires and a movement away from a self-centered or ego-centered action.
0: So desire is not something to be eradicated, but rather refined, as you put it. And also, not all desires are equally desirable to indulge in a pun. You made a nice point with the chocolate bar and noted as well that this example extends even to life's bare necessities like food and water. Desire, in other words, is an ineradicable driver of life. Just as action is ineradicable, since all of nature, from the whirling atom to the entire universe, is action-oriented, desire too is natural and inevitable. But we can perhaps recognize different qualities of desire depending on whether they're aligned more with material ends or spiritual ends.
1: Exactly. The idea is to shift our desires or transform them to those of a higher register. So instead of freedom for me or freedom to attain all the candy bars in the world, the idea is to transform this desire to freedom for all, to freedom in an infinite sense. And I think it's this kind of idea of a transformation or evolution of our material sense, our material consciousness, this rootedness in in, in the material world uh, that is at the root. So the text asks us to cultivate a relationship of loving devotion to Krishna. This is a desire that is a noble one and a worthy one. Because, in this desire for a relationship with Krishna, what happens is a shift to not an a shift to not an external desire relationship, but one that activates an internal union with oneself as part of divinity. And this is where the text shows one of its very dialectical features.
0: Hmm, what do you mean by dialectical features?
1: So the text is often about setting up of dualities or distinctions and showing how they can be unified if approached in a different way. So this kind of being completely separate from action that we've discussed is impossible. Even the ascetic in the mountain must perform some actions. So the idea is not to eliminate action or to eliminate desire, but to integrate desire and action into a higher ideal. The text is dialectic in several senses, I think. One is in the way that oppositions are set up and shown to be overcome, and another sense of the term in the very conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, a conversation between the divine and the mortal. And this is the dialectic of dialogue, in a Socratic sense, perhaps, the searching for resolution or completion, the search for clarity. In this way, even this conversation we are having about the Gita has been able to touch upon oppositional readings, incommensurabilities, and contradictions. And it's through this dialogue about the text a spiritual one, and in applying this text to our current world and situation, that we can see better both our higher selves or aspirations, points of transformation, but the contradictions in the world itself.
0: Yeah, the yogi we read lives fully in the world. Yes. And yeah. elsewhere, where we read, the highest spiritual teachings are meant for active people immersed in the hustle and bustle of the world, not just for reclusive people seeking personal salvation.
1: Exactly. In that way, this book is a text for everyone, for the householder, for the person on a spiritual journey, for the student. It's really a text that everyone can relate to in some way.
0: Now, there's an element of action, which we've been discussing, tied to desire, but there's a corresponding element of knowledge in this picture, too. I'm thinking in particular about the 13th Discourse. Sorry, what's the title of the 13th Discourse?
1: The Field and its Knower, Distinguishing Between Matter and Spirit.
0: That's right. Uh, So in this discourse, The Field and its Knower, The yoga of knowledge is presented as knowledge, the aim of which is neither factual knowledge, like the book on the desk is the Bhagavad Gita, nor conceptual knowledge, like the area of a triangle is one half the product of the base and the height. The object and aim of knowledge, in other words, is not something outside and other than the knower, but it's rather the knower's own inner life, knowledge of how to bring spiritual resonance, and intellectual resonance into our active daily lives, as you so nicely put it earlier. So the aim is a kind of self-knowledge, but not in the sense of psychological knowledge, since there isn't the same compartmentalization between psychology, metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology that we typically encounter in Western theories of knowledge. As you've pointed out, A governing principle of the Gita is unity of opposites or union with the divine.
1: So one might think that the spirit or inner nature will find peace when material griefs are destroyed, but this chapter points to the indwelling and mutual imbrication of the natural, the material, and the spiritual, because there is no place where Krishna is not. So... Even in what I playfully call our compost nature or our material nature, the physical body, the material world, even in the violence and struggles of the material world, Krishna lies here too. Divinity is the weave and weft of the fabric of the material realm.
0: Yes, so matter and spirit are not, they're not necessarily bifurcated into good-bad, where matter is nothing more than a detestable evil to be rid of as, for example, in the doctrines of the Gnostics in the first century. Now, you use the term mutual imbrication.
1: Yes, this also points to our question from earlier on desire. At one point in chapter 11, Arjuna says that he has this desire to see the living image of Krishna. And Krishna reveals that there is a higher secret. The higher secret is that all is from God. All is divine that God dwells in all and is concealed and can be revealed in every finite appearance. So even this strict duality itself is an illusion. It's not a world based on the division of human senses and the human mind and the stuff and things of the material world. Everything is connected in this view. So in the way of our transforming our individual consciousness, this will have impact on the world. A transformation of ourselves, of our own soul nature will have an outward manifestation in a transformation of the world as we see it.
0: Because elsewhere, as we read, uh, pairs of opposites are in fact part of the debilitating malady of delusion that needs to be overcome.
1: Yes, this world of separation.
0: Including the separation between acting and knowing. And this is something that I think is important to emphasize, namely that knowing is a fully embodied phenomenon. I like that this is brought out in the Gita, where we learn that to act lovingly is to know rightly. So acts of loving impart true knowledge, and knowledge of higher truths give rise in turn to enlightening actions. So there's both an ontological as well as existential mutuality, a mutual imbrication, as you put it, that that's at play here between these pairs of opposites. Could we call this mutuality of, oppo- of opposing pairs dialectical?
1: I think of it as a dialectic of sorts, in that the goal of a spiritual wisdom or enlightenment is not grasping something or realizing something external. The highest intelligence here is almost platonic in that sense. It is not an external grasping or finding, but rather a realization or remembering of what one already knows and what one already is. And this is the consciousness, capital C consciousness. So this adds to what we might loosely call the dialectics of the Bhagavad Gita, in that inner life and outer works are connected, in that ethics or moral philosophy is very connected to matters of practice and matters of action. It seems to be a dialectic that is working towards unification and clarity. So we can also see the role of inner work, meditation, Uh, a quieting of the busy mind, but also the yoga that we might commonly see and associate with yoga in the world with uh, physical postures and the discipline of the body. So there's a unification with uh, a control, a self-discipline, a discipline of the body, and a discipline of our spiritual practices that will bring about a greater union with the world outside and with divinity in in all its manifestations.
0: And so what's at work in these spiritual exercises or spiritual disciplines, what takes place here is a kind of self-transformation. Exactly. And that transformation has, as its dialectical correlates, we could say perhaps a cosmological transformation. When inner life and outer actions are connected, when one's philosophy is enacted in practice and not just expounded in theory, when we dialectically work through these apparent pairs of opposites towards unification and clarity, then as the Gita says, the universe itself becomes elevated and sublime. But this is not uh, our default state owing to the downward spiral, right? We need more chocolate. We need that six-figure income. We need to be recognized as the leader of the cause. Marauding desire, we read in Discourse 2, The Path of Action, has captured and now firmly occupies all three bodily stations, the senses, the mind, and the intellect. From these three field headquarters, Desire attacks and kills wisdom and discrimination and shrouds the Atma within. The Atma within is the true self, as over against the default ego self. What is the process prescribed in the Gita by which we enact a self-transformation from our hostage, ego-driven selves to the sublime Atma self within?
1: Mm. So I think... The Bhagavad Gita, one of its strengths is that it is specific to the journey of the individual undergoing it. So there really isn't one singular method that you can apply to your life and your action or thinking through which you can reveal your higher nature. But one of the tools that the book provides is perhaps to use your higher senses to think through these three bodily stations. Do your senses want the chocolate? Does your mind want the chocolate? And does your intellect want the chocolate? And so instead of the marauding desires of our bodily natures, we can think through or learn to think through our spiritual eyes, so to speak. So instead of looking through our human chocolate cake tinted eyes, we can look through our spiritual unified divine eyes. We can meditate or find mindfulness in the face of our desires. We can turn to the divine within in order to see better the world outside.
0: And these higher human faculties, they're more subtle than the composite ones.
1: They are subtle. And the idea is to remove the blinders or the notions of separation that keep us from realizing this ephemeral world.
0: And because they're subtle, they can be elusive. So it's not necessarily obvious that we have a more subtle capacity to discriminate and to exercise a higher agency. But then, what about this agency? What sort of agency is it? If in the exercise of a higher, more subtle agency, we act with our minds free from the notions of doership, without attribution of the action to the ego self, as the Gita says in the 18th and the final discourse, then who or what is ultimately the author of our actions?
1: The idea that the book presents is that this action without action, or this action without interest, is when we are serving as instruments of cosmic consciousness or the divine.
0: And so I guess that leads us into the theology of the Gita. Uh, there are some beautiful discourses here where the essence of the divinity is wonderfully poeticized. The divinity, first of all, is Krishna. Krishna is the mysterious power that supports and sustains the entire universe. And we have a, almost a theophanic monologue from the divinity about its nature. The co-mingling, we read, of these two realms, nature, which is inner matter, And spirit, which is life consciousness, is the womb of all beings. Life itself originates in this union of nature and spirit. The entire universe evolves from these two aspects of me and will finally dissolve into me. I am the innate nature of everything. In pure water, I am the sweet taste. In the sun and moon, I am the radiance. In the very center of human beings I live as virility and courage. I am the sacred word Om, which designates the divine, and I am the sound of it heard throughout the universe. I am the primordial seed of all entities, the power of discrimination in those who are intelligent, the splendor within all resplendent beings and things. Of the strong, I am their might and vigor. As I am beyond all attachments, I am the power in unselfish desire. I am the subtle force in good actions that puts them in harmony with the welfare of humanity. I am the innate urge to help others. And elsewhere we read, this is several pages later, I am the father, mother, and grandfather of the universe. I am the one who dispenses the fruits of people's actions, their karma. I am the one thing worth knowing And I am the enabler of all-knowing. I am all the scriptures ever written. Of all things created, Arjuna, I am the beginning, the middle, and end. Of all sciences, I am spiritual knowledge, Atma knowledge, the science of self that makes ignorance vanish. Of all humanity's instruments for inquiry and debate, I am pure logic. And I think this last description I am pure logic, makes for an interesting juxtaposition with how some people might think of conceptions of God as perhaps incompatible with the axioms of logic. The claim here is that logic itself is an expression, and an especially useful expression, of the divinity that encompasses all things.
1: Yes, this is a really lovely quote that you've read and a very nice point. It brings up the idea that this kind of cosmic creative action or force is an ordered one in this context. And this ordering is a product of the creative energy that is the divine.
0: Now, what about for those who don't believe in God? Is there a way to excise the theology and still retain the wisdom?
1: This is a good question and one that I often grapple with with students. Despite its universal acclaim and benefit, there are some key features and critiques that might make this text harder to apply to the individual than others. And one is this centralized sense of theology and spirituality. Now, one can still have a relationship with this text as an atheist, but I feel that the religious spiritual world view of the book is so central that it's a part of it. Which isn't to say that we cannot look to the book to help us. It does have some intellectual advice and practical advice. It offers some practical wisdom and how to achieve success in practical outcomes. It does have many illuminating passages about the doctrine of selfless action, how to go about establishing or finding what problems actually are how to approach these problems without forcing an outcome, how to meditate on our relationship to the outcomes, and so on. So in the quest that Arjuna has with his current predicament of whether to go to battle, he isolates a certain set of tasks. First is to identify the problem, then to find a solution, and then to implement a solution. Accordingly, this identifying, finding solutions and implementing them teaches him an understanding of values of life and an understanding of achieving perfection, or if not perfection, a kind of unification. So I think there are some lessons for the atheist or for people of other religions from this text. For example, in the practice of mindfulness, in the practice of stilling one's ego nature to think of an outcome that is not coming from a sense of of ego self. Um, But I don't think the spiritual aspect can be removed from the central lessons of the Bhagavad Gita. There may be a way to synthesize the lessons in a way that works for the individual who does not have a spiritual practice. And no doubt the keys to that kind of union or synthesis may be within the book itself.
0: Mm, mm. So Krishna, in his moment of intervention, as you pointed out, with uh, the warrior prince Arjuna in despair, he finds and implements a conceptual solution in the form of an impromptu seminar that has concrete results. So perhaps another way we could think about this text is as a manual in practical philosophy. You're a philosophy PhD student, soon to be PhD candidate, studying in a Western program. You've taught this text in your courses as a lecturer at Marquette, and you've taught it in philosophy classes, specifically ethics classes. How do you take up this kind of a text as a philosopher?
1: This is a great question and one that I'm happy to speak about. So in our syllabi as lecturers and instructors, we're asked to design a component, a non-Western component that must be included in each syllabi. And too often, I saw haphazardly tacked onto to the end of the readings, some introduction to non-Western perspectives, whether they be from the Chinese tradition of Confucius or the Bhagavad Gita or Upanishads or indigenous methods, methodologies and perspectives. And uh, this was done just to fulfill this non-Western requirement. And after some thought, I came to the idea of turning the traditional introduction to ethics syllabus inside out. And what I mean by that is I decided to centralize the Bhagavad Gita and use this text to reach and explore Western traditions. I found this really helpful, and I think my students really appreciated it too. They had the experience of reading this whole book from beginning to end, and both the struggles and the enriching experience of working through this text that can be so different from our own traditions. And from this text, applying an understanding of consequentialism, for example, in the Gita, to the consequentialism of utilitarian ethics. One major line of comparison that comes with this text particularly is with Immanuel Kant and deontology. Deontology, or duty ethics, is often where people go to perform a comparative study of the Bhagavad Gita and Western ethics but it's not the only one. We can understand consequentialism, natural law theory, egoism, cultural relativism, and others through this book. So as an experiment, I reversed the priority of Western ethical theories used to then approach Eastern ones. And I did this very conspicuously and very purposefully to highlight the way in which comparative philosophy Can often fail to highlight the very distinct differences in theories because too often I would see a very reductive analysis that would equate duty in the Bhagavad Gita with duty in Immanuel Kant's view. I wanted to do something about this and to look for ways that these texts might share this concept of duty, but ways in which these concepts are very different. And by doing this, to avoid a kind of epistemic injustice. And so this is where the point I made earlier about not divorcing or removing the spiritual component from the text comes in. Because by removing the emphasis on the spiritual dimension or the spiritual metaphysics, one is able to make these very reductive comparisons. So it's by a process of silencing And silencing one aspect, that a clear comparison can be made. And insofar as we're silencing the spiritual aspect, we're also losing a lot of what the book has to offer, and indeed may do it injustice. I think the Gita helps to demonstrate that the Western prioritization of normative philosophy over practical philosophy may be misguided, and also that a very strict separation between philosophy and religion, or spirituality and action, that these oppositions may not be all there is.
0: I agree with you 100%, and what especially stands out as a point of agreement is that the Western prioritization of normative philosophy over practical philosophy may indeed be misguided. What are some critical points that you would bring up with the Gita?
1: Mm, a, good, a good question. One of these criticisms comes from an understanding of caste and the material determinism that is built into this text by virtue of the metaphysics. And what I mean is this, the text describes modes or ways of being of three types sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic. And these three types map onto ways of being and certain understandings of the caste system or class system. You might recall this as a common criticism of Plato's Republic, where there is a caste system in the Republic too of the gold, silver, and bronze societies or individuals. So this feature of the descriptive world in the Bhagavad Gita where this is a caste system that cannot be entirely overcome, where war is a reality and a just war is possible. And additionally, the cosmic temporal ordering that the book describes and utilizes, these are some elements that might make it harder for us to easily map the lessons of the Bhagavad Gita onto any particular situation or cultural context. But that's not to say that it's not adaptable. Only to say that we should keep in mind that there are limitations. Capitalism as we know it did not exist when this book was written. So while there might be some really interesting analyses that come from looking at capitalism through the Bhagavad Gita, we may just not be able to address some situations. And this is why criticisms by Ambedkar and others, and the potential for uh, a unification of philosophy and theology is very much something to look more closely at.
0: I'm thinking now of our present circumstances where we have, thankfully, much action on the streets, and there's a lot of justified outrage. Have we all become, in a sense, warriors like Prince Arjuna to the extent that we feel and want to express this outrage? And as warriors, can the Gita help us find that center of action where we can be more effective?
1: Yes. This is a really important question for us, I think. In response, I would just like to shift the question a little bit. By centering in action, we forget the importance of the inner spiritual work that the Gita proposes. So action is never mere action. Action is going to be performed as an art without passion and without a prejudiced mind. This is the equanimity that the Gita proposes. So action is also going to require a spiritual practice and activity is just one dimension. There's another dimension of meditation. There's another dimension of devotion and love. And there's a dimension of the intellect or mind. And we can probably outline others as well. So with reference to the current political climate and social situation, we may not all be called to be warriors or actors in the way that we commonly recognize action. Some might be called to do care work. Some might be called to do loving devotion for those actively protesting by providing childcare, health attendance, assistance with laundry and dishes. There are many dimensions. And I think the Gita points to the importance of harmonizing outward action with inward spiritual activity. What we're seeing right now are feelings that are finding articulation in action. And another important aspect of the work that's going on right now is for all of us to look inward to articulate new ways of being, to articulate new futures, and also ways in which we have been complicit in oppression itself. So along with the stress on action is also a stress on the spiritual and psychological development and healing and that work that is required of our individual characters and on the level of the society and our communities. But here we return to an age old opposition, that of politics and religion. And this is what Ambedkar warns us of. If this text or any text could be used as a philosophical justification for a religious view that is built upon and accepts inequalities. Another point of contention could be with the notions of sacrifice and purity. These have some theological and metaphysical baggage that may not serve us if we are trying to build a new world, if we are trying to find new ways of relating and a new kind of humanism going forward. I would also, in closing, um, like to bring to the attention of the listeners who are interested in the philosophical readings of the Bhagavad Gita, a few texts, if I may. One by Kaya Maitra, entitled, Philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, a Contemporary Introduction. The author has in this text made a very nice translation with a clear summary of each chapter, and of particular interest for philosophers, there's a philosophical corner at the end of every chapter with an analysis, questions for considering, particularly questions with a more clear philosophical register. In terms of a theological companion or commentary, I also suggest that by Sri or which is a wonderful um, explanation and commentary on that book.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for those recommendations. We'll link those resources in the description below for anyone listening on YouTube. So theories on the date of the composition of the Gita vary considerably, but at any rate, it's a very old text. And so as you've pointed out, some of its paradigms collapse under the weight of contemporary critique. But still, the Gita finds ways to instruct, and in terms of its specific capacity to cultivate a certain ethos of contemplation, of compassion, of bringing spiritual resonance and intellectual resonance into our active daily lives, it is, in my view, a text that should no doubt continue to inspire.
1: Exactly. There's really many lessons from this book that can assist in one's own spiritual and practical journey.
0: Now, this whole conversation has been on a topic that, as you mentioned at the start, isn't exactly your area of philosophical expertise. So before we say goodbye, uh, Shila, could you share with us some of what it is that you spend most of your time thinking and writing about, and maybe how people can find out more about what you're up to?
1: Super. Well, right now I'm working on my dissertation on decolonial philosophy and theories of nature. I'm also engaging in community work based on food sovereignty and access. I'm preparing to teach an ethics class with the same model again. So I'm reviewing material and strategies for that. And also many wonderful aspects from our conversation today and listeners can reach me through the Marquette philosophy department website and I also have an academia webpage.
0: All right, there you have it. Shaila my friend, thank you for your masterful guidance through this discussion. Thank you also for the occasion to read the Gita and I recommend that everybody do it. I hadn't read it before we planned this conversation and I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity.
1: Thank you so much for this enriching conversation.
0: You've been listening to Philosophy for the People. And remember, as Krishna says, the answer is not to try to restrain your nature, but to progressively improve your nature. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to engage the topic in more depth, be sure to sign up for our free weekend seminar starting Saturday, September 5th. The seminar will be held online over a period of 14 weeks and is open to anyone. Just email philosophyforthepeople at gmail.com and you will be automatically registered to receive updates and weekly invitations to our online classroom. Again, that's starting September 5th. This has been a solid work production. Solid work.
1: <laughs> solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid work.